The Bible is a very interesting book, and there are things of interest that we never dream of found in the Bible. There are things about roads and rivers and cities and lakes and seas and trees. One of the things of interest to me is the fact that so much important activity relating to God's work took place on mountaintops. One day I just began to think about this, and I was quite overwhelmed with the idea that so much was done on mountains. God, I suppose, loved mountains. He made so many of them, and Jesus, of course, went to mountains many times. In the Bible, we have mountains like Mount Ariat, on which Noah's Ark rested after the flood, Mount Moriah, where Abraham was to offer up Isaac. We have the mount where Elijah defeated the prophets of Baal. We have uh, Mount Sinai, where Moses received the Ten Commandments. We have Mount Nebo, from which uh, Moses, or rather where Moses died and was buried. We have uh, uh, Mount Sinai, where God came down and spoke to the people. We have Mount Hermon, where Jesus was transfigured. And of course, we have the Mount of Olives, from which Jesus went home when his work down here was done. And we had Mount Calvary where Jesus Christ was died. But I want to speak tonight uh, for a little while upon four of these particular mountains at least. And uh, I find that to be quite interesting. We have here Mount Zion, Mount Hermon, Mount Olivet, and Mount Calvary that I want to talk about for a little while as I've arranged a little sermon on these. And uh, of course, uh, in addition to the geographical interest that we have here, there's a story that happened on each one of these that really appeals to those of us who are trying to follow God and His blessed and holy Word. On Mount Zion, we have the beginning of God's uh, system. We have Mount Hermon, where we have the authority of God spoken of and delivered to Jesus Christ. We have Mount Olivet, where Jesus Christ went and dedicated himself so often. And of course, we have Mount Calvary where Jesus Christ paid the supreme sacrifice for our sins. So for a little while this evening, I want to talk in turn about each one of these mountains. Uh, we, have, uh, Mount, uh, we have Mount Zion first here that we would consider. That is the beginning, as I have just mentioned. Uh, in Isaiah 2, 2 and 3, the prophet Isaiah, inspired by God, took up the telescope of prophecy, as it were, and looked down the vista of the years for hundreds of years yet in the future. And he said, And it shall come to pass in the last days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains, and shall be exalted above the hills, and all nations shall flow unto it. And many people shall go and say, Come ye, and let us go up unto the mountain of the Lord, and to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us of his ways, and we will walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Now that was a prophecy. Was that prophecy fulfilled? Of course it was fulfilled. All we need to do is turn right over to the second chapter of the book of Acts, and we find that prophecy fulfilled. Where? Right on Mount Zion because that's where the church was established. Now, uh, on this particular place right here, uh, we find the Lord's church, the kingdom, established. And we have the fulfillment of Isaiah's uh, speaking right here. You will notice that this statement 
uh, is to include the fact that we have this establishment of the church, not a, a church, not a denomination, but the church that Jesus Christ established. The one he spoke of himself in Matthew 16 and 18, when he said, Upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Well, the church was built here in, as spoken of in the Bible. It's built as it was given in prophecy. It's given as it was uh, uh, mentioned in type and antitype and so on and so forth. So we have all the uh, things concerning the church fulfilled right here. Now as to the place, Isaiah 2 and 3 said that it would come to pass in the city of Jerusalem from Zion. And of course the city of Jerusalem is built uh, in Zion or on Zion. That's one of the uh, uh, terms for the church and for that uh, city there about Zion. And so we find that that's the place. Now, ladies and gentlemen, that's the beginning. That not only uh, is stated there, but we find well down yonder in the 10th chapter of the book of Acts when the Holy Spirit fell upon those Gentiles down there in the household of Cornelius, the uh, Jews who were standing there admitted that that was the beginning because they said, have, have, have not the Holy Spirit falling upon them as it did us in the beginning. So there, of course, we know was the beginning of the Lord's church. It didn't happen prior to that. It didn't happen during the days of John the Baptist. And, of course, it didn't happen after that time. And we certainly are not looking forward to the fulfillment of it yet in the future. That was the beginning of it right there. Uh, Isaiah 2, 2 and 3, and also we turn right over to Luke 24 and 47, where Jesus spoke and said, Thus it is written, and thus it behooved, Christ to suffer and to rise again from the third day that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. So that's the beginning point then of the Lord's church. We certainly know that. Now, as to the time, we find that it was the last days. That's what Isaiah said. It shall come to pass in the last days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established. I'm not preaching tonight about what the last days were, but I'm preaching about when they were. Now, Isaiah said that that would take place. Joel, the prophet, prophesied exactly, almost word for word, what Isaiah said. You can turn over there in the book of Joel and find it. Now, when Peter stood up that day on the day of Pentecost in the city of Jerusalem, standing on Mount Zion, he said, this is that which was spoken of by the prophet Joel. Now, you know, I like to see a prophecy fulfilled like that. You don't have to question it. You don't have to wonder, is this it, you suppose? Or maybe, maybe could it be this? We don't have to wonder about that. Joel, uh, uh, Peter said, this is that, which was spoken of by the prophet Joel. And then he began to enumerate what Joel said would take place, which, of course, was the same thing that Isaiah said would take place. So that's when it was. That was in the year A.D. 33. That's when the Lord's church was established. And I might say it was established in, at 9 o'clock in the morning. You know, that's an interesting thing. Jesus Christ, uh, the lamb, uh, the, the, uh, the uh, offering was offered up at 9 o'clock in the morning under the Old Testament system. Jesus Christ, uh, rather another one's offered up at 3 in the afternoon. 
Well, Jesus Christ was crucified at 9 o'clock in the morning. And he hung there till 3 o'clock in the afternoon before he gave up the ghost. And then the church was established at 9 o'clock in the morning. That's the beginning that took place on Mount Zion. Now, I know it was at 9 o'clock in the morning because our good old American time at 9 o'clock corresponds with the Jewish time, which was at the third hour of the day, they called it. Now, when uh, the Jews saw these apostles standing up, teach, speaking in foreign tongues or in tongues, they said, "These are not these men drunken? They said, these men are full of new wine. And Peter said, these men are not drunken as you suppose, seeing it is but the third hour of the day. Well, the third hour of the day compares to our nine o'clock in the morning. That's when the church that we are a member of started at nine o'clock in the morning in the year A.D. 33 on Mount Zion in the city of Jerusalem. Now that's it right down to a nutshell. There's not another church on the top side of God's green earth that can go to the Bible and prove when they were established. Not another one. They've got to go down to the library somewhere and find a book down there, and that book will tell them when their founders established their church. And you can go find it anytime you want to. But it won't be at three o'clock in the, uh, 9 o'clock in the morning, and it won't be in the city of Jerusalem, and it won't be on Mount Zion. That was the beginning of it right there. Now, Peter said, this is that which was spoken of by the prophet Joel. And also, this is that that was spoken of by Daniel the prophet, which we read about just a few nights ago. In the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom. What kings? Those Roman kings that were reigning then. In the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom which shall not be destroyed. It shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. That's where it was established. That's the beginning then. We stand and we behold Mount Zion as the beginning of the Lord's institution, the church, because that's where it took place. And, of course, we read in Hebrews 1, 1 and 2, where the Apostle Paul says, God, who at sundry times and in divers manner spake in time passed unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son. So the last dispensation, of course, is the last days. We don't have to wonder, of course, about the founder. The beginner of this church was Jesus Christ. Jesus had said, I've just, I've just quoted Matthew 16 and 18, Upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, any institution in this world that's established by anybody besides Jesus Christ cannot be the church of the New Testament because it was founded by Jesus Christ. This church has a foundation, and that foundation, of course, is Christ. No superstructure is any firmer than its foundation, regardless of how ornate are beautiful and wonderful and elaborate, the superstructure might be. If it's on a faulty foundation, it's not worth much because it's going to fall. All other denominations of this world, regardless of how renowned they may be, how extensive they may be, and how far they may reach, they're headed for dissolution and destruction. Because Jesus said in Matthew 15 and 13, other plants which my heavenly Father hath not planted shall be rooted up. But what did he say about his, the one that was established there? The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The gates of hell cannot prevail. But this church was established upon the rock, 
the rock. That's what Peter was talking about, in, in our, or rather the scriptures talking about in Matthew 16 and 18 when he said, Upon this rock I will build my church. The, the Christ, the confession of Christ, because Paul said in 1 Corinthians, the 10th chapter, Other foundations can no man lay than that which was laid, which is Jesus Christ. So there it is. I don't know how other denominations even have anything to say for themselves. I don't know where they go for any proof. They certainly don't go to the Bible. They can't find it in the Bible. Of course, the name is the scriptural name, the church, the church of Jesus Christ, the church of God, the church of the living God, the church of the firstborn. There they are. And uh, so then we're going to pass on over now to the next mountain. The next mountain is Mount Hermon. We believe that to be the mountain. Scholars believe that was the mountain. This is the most entire, the most northern point of the Lord's entire travels. If I had a map up here, I could show you Mount Hermon way up yonder, the most northern point of his travels, we're told. And he comes to this mountain range where a, one big mountain stands out away from all the other mountains, conical-shaped mountain up there, snow-crested all the time. And the Bible has this to say about it. And after six days, Peter, after six days, Jesus taketh Peter, James, and John, his brother, and bringeth them to an high mountain apart, apart from the mountain range, and was transfigured before them. Now, what does that mean? Jesus had left the other disciples down in the valley, and he took with him those three who always accompany him upon special missions, went inside the garden gate with him when he was uh, uh, tried and when he uh, prayed in the garden, went into the home of uh, down yonder uh, uh, at Joppa when he went in and uh, raised that little girl from the dead, you know, down yonder, and so on and so forth. Well, the Bible says that he climbed that mountain that day. You know, if anybody had climbed a mountain, you'd be a rather soiled. Your clothes would be dirty and you'd be somewhat uh, 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 soiled even if you had had them laundered that morning, if they were perfectly clean when you put them on. You climb a high mountain, you folks out here who climb mountains so much, you know that you're going to be dirtied up by the time you get to the top of that mountain. Now just keep that in mind. Well, way up yonder on the top of that mountain somewhere at night, Jesus sat. These three men surrounded him. And he sat there and with his face turned toward Jerusalem, no doubt, and his something began to happen. They began to see an inner glow of his divine nature shine out through his flesh. And they saw him like they'd never seen him before. We're never told that Jesus smiled. I don't know if he ever did or not. The Bible doesn't say he did. But we are told that he wept. We're told that he was sorrowful. And his face most likely was a face that expressed a hue of Sadness all the time. Seriousness. I would suppose that was the case. But on this particular occasion, that's not the case. The Bible says his face did shine as the sun. Now it was night. But they looked upon him and his face was shining like the sun. That's what is meant by the fact that he was transfigured. His figure was altered. His inner nature the Messiahship of Jesus Christ, his glorified nature was just given a glimpse and they saw something that nobody else ever saw. Those three men did that night. He was transfigured. 
and his raiment was white as a light. Now those clothes. Another narrative about this thing, same thing says whiter than any fuller could get it, meaning whiter than a laundry could get it. And another place says his face to shine as the sun in his strength means noon when it was the brightest and the hottest. Well, the Bible says, and there appeared unto them Moses and Elias talking with him. Something else takes place. In the thin mountain air, way up yonder on the top of that mountain somewhere, is on the side of that mountain, stepping out of the realm of invisibility, there stepped Moses, the lawgiver from many ages ago. There steps out Elijah. And they sit down beside Jesus Christ. Now, if you think that wasn't an august and impressive occasion, well, Peter sitting there became so overawed with it. He became so enraptured with it until he spoke up like he all usually speaks up like a lot of us, sometimes where he had no business. And he said, Lord, it's good for us to be here. If thou wilt, let us make here three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elias. Well, that's not the thing to do, Peter. That's not ever the thing to do, is put anybody on a par with the Lord. And that's what he did that day. He wanted to build a booth. He wanted to build a place of worship along with Jesus' place of worship. You don't do that. Jesus Christ can only build a place of worship because he was the only one sent into this world to establish the institution called the church. And God sent him down here to do it. God didn't like that. And God registered his disapproval of that because a bright cloud overshadowed them at that moment and came a voice out of that cloud that said, Behold, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. That was the place of authority. God put everybody's ear attuned to the voice of Jesus Christ, him and him alone. Away went the law of Moses. Away went all the prophets of a dip, dip foreign dispensation. Now the world is to look to Jesus Christ and hear him. Paul would say about that in Hebrews 1 and 1, God who at sundry times and in divers manner spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son. That's equivalent to what God said that night when he said, Hear ye him. So ladies and gentlemen, I maintain that this was a memorable occasion. These apostles never forgot that. In fact, to the business, let me read you what Peter, who was the spokesman there, and who was one of the men there, had to say later on by the inspiration of God when he wrote his epistle. This is talking about that same thing. For 2 Peter 1, 16, 21, For we have, followed, we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, there were some people back there who were questioning their discipleship, questioning their apostleship, questioning their authority. Peter said, we want you to know we haven't followed cunningly devised fables. But he says, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. We saw him, Peter says. And we saw his majesty there that day. Goes on to say, and, um, for he received from God the Father talking about Jesus now on that mountaintop. For he received from God the Father 
honor and glory when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Peter recounts that. It's a thing that never lost, escaped his memory as long as he lived. Then Peter continues, And this voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with him in the holy mount, Mount Hermon, right here. We have also a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto you do well that you take heed, as unto a light that shineth in a dark place, until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the scriptures of any private interpretation, for prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. He's saying right here, it's as though God had said, Moses, Moses stands as the representative of the old economy with its ceremonies and sacrifices, the law is passed. You are no longer under Moses. Elijah stands as the representatives of a long line of Jewish prophets. The prophecies are fulfilled. You are no longer under the Elijah. You're no longer under the prophets, though, said Elijah. Both Moses and Elijah must give place to him. He is now the way, the truth, and the life, and no man cometh unto the Father but by him. So, ladies and gentlemen, tonight we understand that we have no authority except the authority that was given to us by Jesus Christ. And this is the more sure word of prophecy that Peter was speaking about. He said what we saw was glorious, but we've got a more sure word of prophecy than that, and we've got it right here. It was given to us. And Peter wrote it down. And people who question the Word of God and people who think the Word of God is not sufficient to the direction of their lives, I don't know what else they need. The Apostle Peter said, according as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness. All things. And that was done 1,900 years ago. And there's not one single thing you can think of tonight that you need that's not in that Bible right there. You don't walk along down the road today and all of a sudden hear Jesus Christ speaking to you, telling you something today. Why? He said all he ne needed to say to you. You don't expect to hear the Holy Spirit doing something for you today. Why? Because the Holy Spirit directed everything you need right here in this book. There it is. And it's the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, the people who date get up and claim that they're getting the Holy Ghost direct. Why, they're blaspheming against the Holy Ghost because the Holy Ghost brought us this 1,900 years ago and gave it to us. And the folks who are lying on the Holy Ghost tonight and saying that it told them something that it didn't say because here's all the Holy Ghost is ever going to say till Jesus comes again. So that's a mount of authority. That's it. We have Christ saying, all power, authority is given unto me both in heaven and in earth. Jesus said that just before he left this world and went away. And it was given. What does that mean? I'm sure that many have never realized its meaning. Did you ever hear of breaching authority? Well, that's what millions of religious leaders are doing today. I'm amazed. The Bible says, though a man strive for masteries, yet is he not crowned except he strive lawfully. And the word lawfully comes from the word law, which indicates that we are under a spiritual law. The law of the spirit, the Bible says. I don't understand these people who think that we're entirely under grace today. And of course, that means that we don't have any law to govern us. Sure, we're living in a day of grace, but we have God's word 
and that's our law. And if we don't strive according to it or lawfully, we won't win the prize. That's what the record says. Well, in Matthew 7 and 29, the people were amazed at Jesus Christ because he took a stand, and the Bible says, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. All the scribes could do was quote you what some of their leaders had said, which were the doctrines and commandments of men. But these men were amazed at Jesus because they said he spake as one having authority. And that's right, too. Matthew 28 and 18, as I've just quoted. So then we might question a few things tonight and ask people, where is the authority for it? When people come to you wanting to know why we don't have individual cups in the communion, tell them we have no authority for it. And ask them where they have the authority for it. Tell us in the Bible, where is your authority? When people want to know why we don't have a string band up here, or a bunch of, of uh, musicians up here, a rock band going on or whatever, or a piano sitting over here in the corner or whatever, tell them we have no authority for it. Ask them where is their authority for it. Where is their authority for it? Inst uh, an, uh, a sprinkling for baptism, any number of things. We have to do exactly what the authority gives us. And we hear people talking today about liberals, and we hear people today talking about conservatives and things like that. That's really foolish. We're not liberals. We're not conservatives. We just take the Bible. And I don't think that points you up as being a conservative necessarily. You just take the Bible. You're just faithful. That's what it is. You're just faithful. Jesus said, why call you me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say. But I must hurry along. We come next to another uh, mountain, and I call this Mount Olivet, the Mount of Dedication. And I'm going to take you to a scene now over in the seventh chapter of the book of John. <clears throat> this is the last verse, verse 53. You know, uh, the Bible has uh, those who... Uh, wrote in chapters, divisions, and verse divisions, did us some service. But sometimes they do a disservice because they cut a, they cut a thought right in the middle. And part of it's left in one chapter, which, of course, you quit when you go to bed when you finish that chapter, regardless of what's in the next one. But the rest of that thought is in the beginning of the next chapter. And there you are standing with just half of it. And by the time you get back to read the next chapter, you may have forgotten it. So there's a disservice. That's the case right here. In the seventh chapter of John's gospel and, and verse 53rd, we have these words, and every man went unto his own house. And the chapter ends. But the next chapter begins with the first verse, Jesus went unto the Mount of Olives. Now these ought to be put together because it shows you a great contrast right here. And it's a very big, beautiful picture. These verses belong to the same wonderful story, but unfortunately are separated by chapter markings, as I've said. The idea is this. The Feast of Tabernacles was taking place in the city of Jerusalem. That's that beautiful time of the year in the autumn season when the harvest is in, when the year is uh, reaching its fulfillments, the crops are all made, that golden time of harvest, they had what they called the Feast of Tabernacles. And they celebrated the tour of the uh, Israelites through the wilderness by all the residents of Jerusalem moving out 
getting on their flat hop top houses or getting down on the ground and building themselves a little booth of just leaves like we used to do down south when we had these old uh, brush arbors for a gospel meeting. They put leaves up here, uh, branches up above, and they lived in that and celebrated the tour of the uh, Israelites through the wilderness as they were coming. Well, that had been going on, and the last big day comes. And I suppose they were all about ready to sing, God be with you till we meet again, if they had that in their songbooks, because uh, the end of the meeting had come and everybody was leaving. The dismissal had been uh, said, and the man of Galilee had been attending the feast, He'd gone up to the temple and taught his wonderful message to the people, and there was a division because of his message. And that last great day of the feast, Jesus declared himself and stood up there that day and gained the attention of the whole crowd. He said, if any man thirsts, let him come unto me and drink. Well, that's when they poured the water out, you know, ceremonially up there. Everybody had their eye on that water, and that's when Jesus spoke up and said, let him come unto me and thirst. Well, some of the multitude would have laid hands on him, but others believed on him and exclaimed, Never man spake like this man. Evening comes now. The sun is lost to view behind the hills. The shadows of darkness begin to fall over the land. The mantle of night was thrown. There must be a separation from the night, a rest from the labors and toils and excitements of the day. The crowd was moving out of the temple. We are concerned with where they spent the night. Well, we're told here, and every man went unto his own house. To them was the call of home, sweet home, be it ever so humble, there's no place like home. Back there, perhaps, was ease, comfort, luxury waiting for them. They were hungry, the table would be spread with the foods of earth that they needed. They were tired, and there would be a good warm bed waiting for them. Others had been disappointed in the marketplace, and there would be friends to comfort them back at home. Still others wanted to talk over the happenings of the day, some of them strange happenings, and of course they with loved ones could gather around the dying embers of the hearthstones. At last amid the glory and peace of the old home place, they could, they could lie down peacefully and slumber until the sun was again climbing the stairs of the morning. Rest, sleep, blessed sleep was their portion that night and how they needed it. But the Bible says, and Jesus went, unto the Mount of Olives. What a contrast. It fills us with deep emotion to think of it. The story is filled with much feeling. It had been a hard and trying day for Jesus, too. He, too, must find rest and a place to tarry for the night. Is it possible that no one thought to ask him home with them? So few people have their homes open to Jesus even today. They have rock stars. They have movie stars. They have politicians. But they don't have any room for the man of Galilee. He's not there. He's not in their hearts. He's not in their homes. Jesus is at last alone. No light to shine down upon him except that of a flickering star or the mellow rays of a waning moon. The master was alone in solitude as so far as human companionship was concerned. The question rises, why did Jesus go to Olivet that night? There are two probable reasons. Once he said the foxes have holes and the fowls of the air have nests, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. Maybe that's one reason he went. So Jesus was at this time without a home. 
and that great throng of people, it's possible that no one invited him home with them. Mary and Martha may have failed to see him and may have felt, and he may have felt that he had been imposing upon these good people, as we mentioned last night, you know. Then again, maybe he chose to go to Olivet for a purpose. He had seen the formal worship in the temple with all of its ritualism, formalism, and hollow mockery. He was not satisfied. And all you've got to do is read the account to know how the Jews had drifted so far from the law of God like the church has today in some places. Jesus could have been weary. He could have been heartsick, burdened for lost Jerusalem. Jerusalem had turned him down. There he was, the Savior, and they didn't know him. He said, how often would I have gathered you together as a hen doth gather her chickens under her wings, but you would not. He wanted to be alone, perhaps. Alone that he might spend the night in pouring out his heart to his heavenly Father over a lost world. Yes, and the Bible says, and Jesus went alone, went to Mount Olives. Let's modernize the scene tonight and see if even yet we're not doing the same thing down here sometimes as members of the church. Is it not tragically true that we're still going to our own homes while Jesus goes to all of it? When we leave people who are in need and we ignore them, there's luxury and show on every hand. With all of our modern homes and furnishings and automobiles and jewelry and luxuries of all kind, when people in foreign nations are dying without the gospel, when you can go through the church and take the brooches and the diamonds and what have you off of the people's hands and off of their bosoms, enough to send a preacher off somewhere to hold a gospel meeting in some foreign country. That mount of dedication. Jesus went there because he was dedicated to his Father. And I'll tell you, the church today needs to climb the mount of dedication. Dedicate ourselves to God over a land, over again. The church has gone begging sometimes in some places like the poor blind man by the wayside. Help, help, or we perish. I'm wondering if it is not true that some of them, some people would not let the buildings be sold at auction and the feet of Christ be shackled before they would give of their jewels and luxuries for the sake of Christ. Some sing all to Jesus, I surrender, all to him I freely give, and through their diamond-bedecked fingers they drop a dollar in the plate. Some sings, where he leads me, I will follow, I'll go with him all the way. But when he climbs Mount Olivet, they don't go. They've got to give up their pleasures and their recreations and their big times and their laughs and their ha-has and their big times down here. Just like we're living in a... a uh, merry-go-round in this world. No wonder Jesus went to Calvary as he looked down and he saw through the centuries how his people would do and how they were doing at that time. We're led to believe that other, Jesus spent other nights on Mount Olivet. Again, he said he had seen the hypocrisies of many of the religious leaders of his day he had driven out the money changers from the temple and tried to lead the people to God. So again, while the crowds would go to their places, he would go back to all of it. And what nights they were. There on the heights with God, he was making ready for the final way to the cross, which not wouldn't be very long off now. 
Scars can be healed in the silences of the night as nature plays its part. Wounds of the heart can be healed in the silences with God. Great burdens can be borne as we wrestle with God in the night until the day dawns. In the days of stress and storm, we're not taking time to be holy many times. We're too busy. We need some quiet meeting place with the Lord. Jesus had said one time, go into your closet, close the door, and pray to your Father in secret. And your Father who hears you in secret will reward you openly. I believe that still would be a good thing. In this day, there's so much stress, so much strain, so many telephones ringing, so many televisions going on constantly all the time. We don't have any time for anything else much. We rush off to our businesses. We spend all of our time worrying about that. We rush back home. Then, of course, there's something to do. What time do we have for God to be all alone with God? There's strength in that. And the people who do that are the strongest people in the church. We've read about Daniel who prayed three times a day. It takes the Mount of Transfiguration and the Mount of Olives to build a great life. We welcome the first, but we shut out our ears to the other. We forget the thorn behind the beautiful fragrant rose. We forget the cross of Christ behind the halo of his head. We see him in triumph, but our eyes are blurred to his tragedy. We love his plan of salvation, but we think little of the price that he had to pay for it sometimes. We enjoy the fruits of Christianity, but we shudder for the price that we have to pay to obtain them. We want the cross, but we shun, we want the crown, but we shun the cross many times. We need the amount of dedication to dedicate our lives to the Lord. The closer we press to him, the closer he will press to us. On Mount Olive's sacred brow, Jesus spent the night in prayer. He's the pattern for us all, all alone. If we only steal away in some portion of the day, we will find it always pays to be alone. Last tonight, I'm going to talk to you about another mountain, the last mountain. It's in the land of, uh, uh, I want to talk to you about this mountain. Uh, in Luke 23 and 33, we read these words, And when they were come to the place which is called Calvary, there they crucified him and the malefactors, one on the right hand and the other on the left. Now, of all the other mountains we've spoken of, this one tugs most at the heart because of what was accomplished here. Every redeemed man can stand today and thank God for Mount Calvary. Here is the spotlight of the ages. All that has been planned and arranged in God's great scheme of redemption finds its fulfillment here. This is the center of the ages. Isaiah's great prophecy of Isaiah 53 concerning the suffering Messiah is coming to pass here. Man's redemption is bought. And as Peter said, who his own self bear our sins in his body on the tree, that we being dead to sin should live unto righteousness, and by whose stripes we are healed. First Peter 1 and 18 says, For as much as ye know that ye were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by the traditions of your fathers, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. That's where it took place. We're thankful tonight for Calvary. 
We sing the song that's so pretty. Had it not been for a place called Mount Calvary, had it not been for the old rugged cross, had it not been for a man called Jesus, then forever my soul would be lost. But I want to say something else about this before I conclude. It has its type over in the book of Genesis, Genesis 22. You remember that story of Abraham? Abraham and Sarah, the old, old couple, the father of the faithless, he's called. You know all about Abraham. I suppose their life was a happy life. I suppose their marriage was a happy marriage. But there was one cloud on their brow. They had one little disappointment. They had never heard the pitter-patter of little feet in their tent. They had known, never known what it was to caress a baby to their bosom. But would you believe that one day an angel came by and told them that they were going to be the parents of a little boy? Sarah laughed, and God didn't like it. God was offended. He said, you ought to laugh, Sarah. He told Abraham about it. But that happened. A little boy was born. A little boy of promise. Now you talk about doting parents, more like grandparents. You know, they say that grandparents are here for, for the purpose of spoiling grandchildren. And you always, of course, easier on your grandparents than you were on your parents. That's what everybody tells me. So I don't know how they were about this little fellow, but they're old enough to be great-great-grandparents. I know that. But how they loved that kid. He began to grow up to a good-sized little boy. And their whole life was wrapped around him. They watched him as he played outside the tent door in the evenings when the sun was setting in the west and the cattle were grazing off out yonder. But would you believe one night while they slept, a, a resonant voice came deep and strong to old Abraham as he had heard it before. Abraham, and he said, Here am I, Lord. He said, Take Isaac, thy son, thine only son, to make it even more touching. Over to Mount Moriah to a mountain that I'll show you and offer him up as a sacrifice to me. Well, I don't suppose there's much more sleep in the tent that night. And uh, there must have been some wrestling in that old man's heart. But he was a friend of God and he was the man of faith. The next morning he pulled a little boy out of the bed real early and the young men, his servants, saddled up the asses and laden them with wood and with fire and they started out across that river, across that uh, valley floor and went days off over yonder to the mountains. And uh, we have no record of the conversation on the trip. But when they got over there, we have just one little glimpse as they climbed that mountain. And he tells the young men to stay here with the beast. He takes Isaac and he walks on up. And finally Isaac says to him, well, 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 here's the fire, and here's the wood, but where's the sacrifice? And I imagine with a lump in his throat, he said, God will provide a sacrifice. I don't know what that meant. I don't know if he knew that God would somehow work this scheme out, but I know one thing, he was faithful enough to go through it, whatever it was. He built an altar, and I suppose he did it deliberately, he builded an altar, the Bible says. That took some while. Isaac stood there and watched it. Then he bound that lad, that son of promise that he had loved so much. He clutched that kid to his bosom and lifted it up and laid him upon that. And he reached back there and took a knife and raised his hand up like that and was going to 
hide that knife in the body of his little boy. And God said, Abraham, stay thy hand. Now I know thou believest. He looked and saw a ram tangled in the briars over there and in the thorns. He was so grateful. He reached over there and took that ram and offered it in his stead as a sacrifice. So this mountain is a mountain of sacrifice, as I'll show you. That very mountain where this was offered over in the land of Moriah, back in that ancient day, many, 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 many days before Jesus Christ would ever come, and even the city of Jerusalem would be built. I'm told that in the land of Moriah he offered the mountain range around the city of Jerusalem has for its highest peak a hill called Calvary. Now, Abraham had called the name of that place, the Bible says in verse 14 of chapter 22, Jehovah Jireth, as it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord it shall be seen. And that whole thing means the Lord will provide. And the Lord did provide. And the Lord gave him a sacrifice, and he offered it. And it's so very fitting to me to know that Jesus said in John 8 and 56, your father Abraham, they claim to love Abraham, you know. Your father Abraham saw my day and rejoiced in it. And he was glad. So many ages later, they took the Lamb of God out and nailed him to a cross upon that same mountain. Now called Calvary. And that's the place of sacrifice. We're thankful for that mountain because that's where our salvation was accomplished. So these are four great mountains that I thought would be interesting to the people. I put this little sermon together and I have just one final thing to say now. And we go back to the Mount of Olives for a minute. After Jesus was crucified and after he was buried, after he arose again and appeared about 11 times to his disciples, one day he went away. And uh, one great writer put it like this, from the highest point of the Mount of Olives, he took his journey. As he ascended, he could look back once more at the world which, had, which he had come to save, which had rejected him. He could also, also he could look and see sights and scenes which must have been dear to him. This is while he's going home to heaven now, and a bright cloud taking him. On the east at his feet, he could see the village of Bethany, and maybe even the spot of the sweet home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, where he had often found hospitality and love and at many, and at many a visit. And also the tomb where he had raised Lazarus from the grave. Beyond is the Mount of Temptation, and far on down the river of the valley of the Jordan with the blue line of the river in which he was baptized. On the west, objects even more tender naturally riveted his eye. On the south was Bethlehem, his birthplace. Directly before him, Jerusalem, with the temple, palace of Herod, and Pilate's hall, where he had so recently been tried. And there, were, there was Calvary, where he had paid off the world's sin debt, and Joseph's new tomb, where his body had rested. But now he was going home. His life work completed, and man's redemption all bought and purchased.
mountaintop messages. Isn't it interesting that these things all took place on the top of some mountains? I wonder, am I talking to somebody tonight who's never benefited in their life from the sacrifice that Jesus Christ made on that mount of sacrifice, which was Calvary? If not, we give you that opportunity while we stand and sing. We thank you for listening to our podcast put on by the Church of Christ at 2215 Plans Road in Bakersfield. If you would like any additional information or you would like to receive a free Bible correspondence course by mail, please email us at info at churchofchristbakersfield.com. Our service times are Sundays at 1030 a.m. and 5 p.m. and Wednesdays at 730 p.m. Please make plans to join us. We would love for you to be our honored guest.